Welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast, episode number 18. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion Today, I'm going to be joined by one DB, Daryl Bulky. We got a couple of different things we're going to cover some training stuff, some consideration stuff. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Again, this week, Mountain Man Medical. Mountain Man's focused on two principles first, build med kits and trauma kits that consist of name branded, proven tested components second make them the most affordable of any company on the market check out the full lineup of products and kits at mountainmanmedical.com and remember law enforcement officers firearms instructors and other professionals you can save up to 15 percent mountainmanmedical.com all right welcome back uh, we haven't had DB on the off-duty, on-duty podcast yet, and he's now joining us. So welcome to the podcast, Daryl. I appreciate you taking the time out to do this. I've been wanting to get you on for a while. Uh, glad to be here as always. Yours are one of my always my favorite to do. So, Well, thanks for that, man. I'm, uh, I'm confident in the gun realm. This whole technology <laughs> business is a bit uh, sketchy at times. But I'm the sketchiest at it. There's that. <laughs> well, you know, you're, I got to give you props, though. Watching you the other night, you were one of the first guys in a long time I've seen actually carry his own whiteboard to a class and use it. It's in the back of the truck, and uh, I always have a whiteboard with me because that's how good I am with technology. Yeah, and, and they're more a big graduation from I used to be the flip chart guy. You give me a flip flip chart and a sharpie, I can do I can do miracles on anybody's range. That's excellent. And <laughs> that sent- range was actually so nice that they didn't have a whiteboard. It was all computer stuff, and I was like overwhelmed. Like I didn't prepare for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great facility. Some great people work there, and uh, been kind of a fixture in the local gun community up here for about five years now. And uh, really done some some good, like to bring the shooting community kind of together. You know, I mean, it, because it's it, you know, I'll tell you, I could not be more impressed. The uh, not only you know, a I was able to buy two boxes of thirty eight special, which was joyous for me, and then uh, on top of that, the food was amazing at the restaurant. I I was literally floored by how good the food was. So yeah, we enjoyed it. I spent a boatload of money there. I don't know if that was the idea, but it happened. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's that's one thing I got to say is I don't know if it's a gun range with a really great restaurant or a restaurant with a really great gun range. It's yeah, that, either way. And then you know you coming by and dropping off adult beverages was really kind of the uh, cherry on top of the whole evening. So, yeah, <laughs> well, that was my pleasure. I hadn't seen you since TACCON like nineteen. So <laughs> yeah, 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 so there's that. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we're talking about uh, the local range Wilshire Gun Club here in Oklahoma City, and if you you're in town it is a fine facility and if nothing else get by there and catch a burger tonight i kind of you know when i do these with hanny a lot hanny's kind of my go-to if i get if i need some content and i don't have a lot of time and i need somebody that can just talk off the cuff he he's usually available so we don't rehearse them we just kind of loosely pick a topic 
the name of the podcast grows out of that and i find it like keeps things fresh it's not so canned you know so but tonight we were talking a little earlier i thought you know what's the difference like with training and cons- training considerations and methods what's the difference in making a gunfighter and making a shooter and by shooter i mean somebody that that can exercise like flat range marksmanship and i know a lot of good ones so i kind of want to get your thoughts on that on uh, especially like on the le side right now cuz we're seeing more gunfights and less what I would call shootings these days, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, you caught part of my presentation the other night, um, with the shoot like girl instructors that I was doing. And, you know, it's a perfect example. The ladies I had in that classroom are all instructor peers and are not rookie shooters by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Matter of fact, Jamie Meyer went out the next day and hammered a 297 uh, Vickers 300, which is wow. <laughs> yeah, they're they're that level of shooters. But the reason I was up there was to talk about you know this in a use of force realm, and it's different. You know what I was talking about the other night, and I kind of picked this up actually from my dad. My dad's a big corporate business guy. Uh, you know, at one point in life, he was the United Jewish Appeal Businessman of the Year, which is a uh, hard one to pull in that world. Right. And, you know, his whole thing is kind of marketing and uh, just a phenomenal observer of business. And his thing with business is that you have uh, your business has got to be in complete balance with and, and it's a lot like what we do. It's, uh, you know, sales and marketing, the finance side and then the production side have all got to be sort of in perfect alignment. And he says that you can usually look at most businesses, and if any of those legs of that stool are out of alignment, the stool falls. You know that fell in really good with our world. Um, Jeff Cooper did a nice thing for us on coming up with a combat triad of mindset, marksmanship, and then we got gun handling and tactics. Uh, Pat Rogers used to make a rectangle. I kind of like the triangle still, so I just mix the gun handling and tactics together. And, you know, over my years of investigating all of those shootings I've investigated, being in shootings, being at shootings, you know, what I found is that balance thing is absolutely critical of mindset, marksmanship, gun handling, and tactics. When I took over some of these programs of of finding out where the problems were, what I identified is the biggest issues in my era were all gun handling issues. The cops we had, their mindset was... They were hard dudes, um, ladies and dudes, because even the female cops back then were, you, you, you know, it, to be a female officer in a tough city in, you know, the 80s, 70s, 80s, stuff like that, yeah, you, know, you had to be pretty tough. Yeah, and um, you, you're probably coming right off the heels of the Vietnam era, too. So I'm, yeah, I'm guessing and, and, you had you know, quite a the, few. So I made the observation um, recently that we're doing 1968 again right now. And for those of us that remember either when we were kids or growing up in the seventies, the seventies was horrific for, for crime. Yeah. Everybody talks about crime now, you know, it, it isn't even scratching the surface on the seventies. Uh, you know, back when New York used to be 3000 plus homicides a year without even trying all the big cities were like that. So the difference was, is I tell people, I came up with this observation that I believe the, 70s and 80s cops or what or the 70s cops in particular really saved that era 
in that as bad as it was, you had a bunch of cops who were generally coming right out of the military. It's sort of what you did. And most of those were Vietnam vets. They came back and they had a good job background for being cops. And they were supervised by greatest generation Americans. So their bosses, their sergeants, lieutenants, supervisors were World War II and Korea War vets. These are just simply hard people who did hard work and were adapted well to that level of violence in those times. I came along as a plank-holding Gen Xer. And in the 80s, and my supervisors, most of those supervising me in that era, were Vietnam vets, Um, particularly the really good supervisors, all had military experience in that era. Whether they, they saw combat or not was almost irrelevant, because even the ones who didn't were deployed overseas during the Cold War. That was not a joke. You know, being over in Eastern Europe or in uh, Europe during the Cold War was not a funny thing. It was quite serious. So having those kind of people around, their mindset was phenomenal. Uh, They didn't tolerate guff from criminals. They didn't uh, cry. They didn't need a good cry. Uh, They weren't very sensitive. Going through the academy with those folks as your, uh, your bosses in the academy and your track officers and stuff, they made life a living hell. Uh, your FTO programs were sort of a living hell, getting pretty much hazed throughout the whole thing, and it was hard. And so most of the mindset of the era was good. As I was talking the other night, the you know my department's qualification at the time was the first phase was six rounds and five minutes at 25 yards on a B8. Now, that sounds ridiculous now, but the reality of it is they could tear a X and a 10 out of a B8 at 25 yards. Find me a bunch of cops right now who can tear an X and a 10 out of a B8 at 25 yards, and most can't. Right. Where that was part of our qualification. So marksmanship skills were good, but they were horrible on the gun handling and tactics in that era. Uh, just horrible. We 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 have learned a lot. Uh, contact and cover, uh, concealment versus cover, uh, use of vehicles. All of these things have all developed, and they were all developed out of failures. We've been able to learn from that violent area of the '70s and '80s. Unfortunately, also provided us with a lot of cops getting shot and killed and right. injured that we can look at and adapt the tactics to that. So. As the tactics and the gun handling got better, it seems, though, that it, fast forward my career from the, the Gen Xers rescue in the world in the 80s, and we really kind of crushed crime in the 90s, coming off of those hard 70s and 80s in the crack wars and all of that. What you're seeing now, what I saw at the end of my career with the trainees I was getting, which I called Gen Ys, that's W H Y, and then now what we're seeing with a lot of the sort of millennials and that getting in the job and many departments are actually avoiding the best trainees I ever had, which were generally the guys who were in the military and coming back from overseas deployments, tended to be phenomenal young cops because they knew what it was like to be away from mommy and daddy and work in a paramilitary organization and work, work in an environment where you were around a lot of people not like you. That's fair. And they adapted well to law enforcement, but a, a sadly, a lot of agencies don't want those because, you know, they don't have enough college time. They're afraid they have 
some sort of weird PTSD or something. You know, it's all crazy. The, the, the reality is they make fabulous cops and we're not utilizing them enough for that. What I see now is the biggest issues are not so much the marksmanship side. It's not what it should be, but it's okay. The, the problem is a lot of the cops we're getting don't have any marksmanship skills that they came into law enforcement with. So they didn't grow up shooting. They did not weren't around guns. Guns are sort of, it's a thing you carry like a pen, you know, that you, they make you carry on that belt. The gun handling and the tactics tend to be pretty good as taught in the academies, far better than what I got, just because it's developed well. And we've actually learned a lot from successes and failures in the field. But boy, the mindset's terrible. You know, when you got people who've never been in a fight, never played a contact sport, uh, never been in a car without a seatbelt, never rode a bike without a helmet, then do nothing. They kind of, uh, everybody gets a trophy and a pizza party generation. It's hard for them to adapt to high level violence. And to work all those other skills inside of that realm of violence that is new. And then on top of it, the scrutiny we're seeing that is from the Monday morning quarterback world that has no experience in what their Monday morning quarterbacking is making it kind of a horrific set of circumstances. Funny you mentioned the uh, the gun is part of the uniform like a pen. I can remember, you know, my dad was heavily involved in firearms training. I think he became a, an instructor in about 85 and then all the way through semi-auto transitions in the early nineties or actually the late eighties into training recruits with the, this newfangled Glock 17, right? One of the things he said, even in that era, you know, a lot of police officers that he saw coming through in that era kind of looked at the gun as it was just another part of the uniform. it was, There was real no real significance to it. And what was interesting is that was supposed to be me. I was the first person recruited off a college campus at my agency. Um, the, uh, you know, I will admit now I fudged the uh, psych a little bit and pretended to be my brother. But I came from, I was working at a police equipment store selling guns to law enforcement, military, special operations. I came out of that environment, but I did not grow up shooting. It's something I kind of decided to do and dove deep into when I was in college and decided I wanted to be a police officer. You know, kind of counter that with my business partner, Wayne Dobbs, who, you know, he was shooting in a onesie on grandpa's knee at Granny's Pond. And you know, I always tell people my granny didn't have a pond and we went to the store for food. <laughs> so I didn't grow up in that environment, but I adapted well to it. But even my sort of era was that kind of a beginning of guns are bad. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned to somebody, I saw a huge difference. I remember starting as a young police officer and you'd pull in the parking lot, at the police department and just about every car there had an NRA sticker in the back window. Okay. You don't see that anymore. No. Right. Nope. I mean, yeah. those NRA stickers, well, it was usually the combo too. If you had the, the textbook combo, it was the, uh, NRA sticker and the, uh, Marine Corps globe and anchor. You get a few of those, but I mean, you just don't see where eight out of 10 cars in a police parking lot have an NRA sticker in the back window anymore. No. And it's sort of a different environment and how they treat firearms and the firearms are treated as sort of a bad thing rather than a life-saving tool. Yeah. I, 
I got quoted in by Steve, Mo, our, our good friend, Steve Moses, you know, I rattled off at the head one day when we were talking, I said, you know, I don't understand why like the civilian community when it, you know, when it comes to liability coverage and, and then the law enforcement community on the training side, I'm like, man, your gun will save your life, get you sued or get you put in prison. And in the worst case scenario, all three, I don't understand the apprehension to taking, taking additional training or pressing yourself to a higher standard with, with a firearm. I think it's, it's a critical skill that we, we kind of gloss over is like, well, I'm good enough. I, I shoot a qualification score that's acceptable. And, you know, sadly that's, that's called uh, failure of leadership in law enforcement. That's failure at executive levels. That's failure of the politicians, because the reality is they are telling their people that that 70% on the no cop left behind qualification state minimum is all they really need. And it's you and I both know that is a big fat gigantic lie, but everybody wants to bank on it rather than doing the work. And we keep lowering that bar to make things easier for those who probably don't belong in the profession. The biggest change I made at my place when I was running the the firearms program was I wanted to take the 80% of the middle of the department and get them trying to be like the top 10% instead of them lowering the standards to the bottom 10%. Uh, I think the most significant thing I got done through having the right training sergeant, later a training lieutenant, when he got promoted was the ability to fire people for not being able to qualify uh, because he was the guy going all the NRA uh, lead classes with me with Mark Fricky and some of the other training stuff. I finally had a boss who was as interested in the training as I was. And that was one of the things we instituted And, you know, you got 10% of your folks out there who are overachievers, who want to do well, who are great shooters. They tend to be the 10% who are always the first in the door. They're your kind of meat-eater carnivores of the agency that are doing most of the hard work. You have that kind of 80% in the middle, and then you have that 10%, and it isn't like everybody doesn't know who they are. They don't belong there. They shouldn't be cops. They shouldn't be in gun positions. Or any, they shouldn't be in jobs where they have guns. And rather than just tell them that, they let them have a gun and lower the standards to meet them and then force the other 80% to tell them that that's the way it's supposed to be. And then they, what it ends up doing, and it completely de- disconnects that top 10% who, are, who go to the range and are bored and disgusted, not motivated in anything else because they're watching an entire process being catered to 10% of the people who don't belong there rather than a process that should be rewarding the 10% that are working their tails off and having that other 80% trying to be like the top 10% rather than trying to be like the bottom 10%. I came in at a a, a unique time in 2002. Everything we did was still very revolver-based, PPC, 50-yard line, 25-yard line, uh, one of the things I did like was reloads under time. And a lot of that went, right. went away. We actually had some visionaries at the state level that said, you know, this is a great game and this is a great marksmanship tool, but it's very static. 
the time standards are ridiculous. You know, they're, they're ridiculously long and they implemented this shift across the board in this with the stroke of a pen. And it was really unique to watch people that had been ingrained in that PPC revolver, just doc indoctrinated into it, even shooting a semi-auto, which hey, great. They changed the course, restricted the time standards, got rid of reloads under time and reduced the target size slightly. And we had masses of people that couldn't qual couldn't even qualify under the new state standard. The instructors, the instructor cadre that were there, and this has been probably 11, 12 years ago, it was like, hey, this is just another course of fire. Yeah, roll with it, right? But we saw that a lot of that 80% you're talking about crater under the pressure of mm-hmm. just changing the format. And they limit, you know, they eliminated 50-yard line shooting. It's everything's 25 and in. The time standards are pretty restrained. You had right. you had this indoctrination of, hey, let's take a relaxed grip on the pistol and we've got all this time to shoot. Don't worry about time to uh we're not really teaching them to be gunfighters. We're teaching them to be paper punchers. And then Well, and you know, that's the you need both. You do. So you need that marksmanship side of the the, the equation because you the reality is that a lot of people are spending so much time doing the fast, 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 fast stuff and not doing the accurate stuff. And then, or they're doing, it used to be hard catered to the accuracy with no fast. And, you know, it, I, I want to credit this. I believe it was Ken Hackathorn who said, you know, the, uh, the uh, speed ferry sh- always shows up to these things. It's trying to get the accuracy ferry on board with it, you know, um, during shooting events, you know, yeah. um, you know, try smacking the crap out of a trigger fast is not difficult to do. It's the hitting part with it. Right. And you know, it's why, you know, I'm pretty proud of kind of the work that was put in from kind of my world on the term I use is assessment speed shooting. So like that class I taught this weekend, that was all we worked on was, basically shooting at assessment speed, shooting at problem solving speed, which is completely different than either sport shooting speed or uh, shooting zombie targets at three yard speed. It's trying to find that strike that balance of how can I shoot at a very high level of accountability with a very high level of assessment and it's one of those like yucky subjects nobody wants to talk about because it's like going to the gym and it's not fun. Right. And the only other thing that's more yucky that nobody wants to do or talk about because it's not fun is administrative gun handling, which tends to be where all the bad stuff happens. Yeah. And I, I think the first guy for me on the instructor side cracked what I had always known, but not how to really necessarily format it. It was kind of like, okay, I can shoot a PPC match. I can go shoot a USPSA match and I can be, you know, a fairly high level competitor in both. I could never unlock, okay, what are, how do I put the two together and be reasonably fast and very accurate? And our bro there in Arizona, Ernest, when I went and sat with him and sat through a lot of his training, that was what it was about was shooting at that 
shooting at a, at speed and still being accountable for your your accuracy, accountable for hits, and how to break that down, execute it, and not only execute it but teach it. And that that was really kind of like a missing link in my instructor game. I would say for for a lot of years yeah. was was I can teach you how to shoot PPC. I can explain to you how to go out and hose targets. It's you know whatever, but how to put the two together to where you become extremely accurate at like what you call assessment speed uh, was kind of a mystery to how to teach that. And he he I'll give him all the credit for unlocking that uh, for me anyway. What I sort of found was based on the guys that I, that I was blessed to have been taught by, which was that kind of the real good firearms cadre back in D platoon at LAPD back in the day with Larry Mudgett was running that program, you know, and you had Scotty Reitz there and John Helms coming in and, you know, that, that level of instructors, uh, Ralph Morton was who was kind of assigned to tail me and is a, was an amazing instructor on his own. But what I, I saw firsthand with them, and luckily I got to see it when I was 24 years old as opposed to finding this out later in life, was watching those guys work high, high-level accountability at a subconscious level. And, you know, luckily I give Larry Mudgett credit for explaining to me how you get people to shoot that way at a subconscious level, which is basically you got to make them do it over and over and over again at a high level of accountability. And that's not easy. And it's not easy in law enforcement in particular to sit there and go, you know, we're going to shoot these very regimented things that we do to set that clock in your head, set the accuracy standards that are extremely hard, extremely difficult to make for people who aren't dedicated shooters so that when you get out on the street, you're shooting at that type of shooting is subconscious. And then all you got to do is the problem solving. Yeah. The problem comes in is when the problem solving gets overwhelming and panic sets in, uh, people begin emotionally banging on a trigger and it turns into a complete and utter total disaster. The other problem you have is, a lot of people, and this gets back to some of the mindset stuff and kind of what we're hiring and what we're putting out there in cop world, the ones who have basically, I call it buying the lie, you know, all this time, your, your executive staff who are not the ones out there doing this are telling you, you're getting this great firearms training because it's state state standards and, you know, all this pie in the sky stuff. And, you know, then you're out in the street, your ego knows that you've been staring in a, in a mirror and lying. You, you are not equipped to deal with some of these problems. You know, you don't have the skills to solve these problems effectively. And then we get all shocked and surprised when we get these massive round count hose shootings that are nothing more than sheer emotional panic on a trigger because we didn't do a good job of preparing people for reality. And that, like I said, I put that squarely and I mean squarely at the foot of executive police management and city, city or county government, you know, or who, whatever the government agency managing or overseeing that agency is. And then the top floor of that agency, I, I dropped that solely on them 
because they love all calling themselves leaders. They like going to leadership seminars and conferences and schools and stuff. But when it comes down to being actual leaders, which their primary duty is the training of their the people serving under them to be well-trained for the job they're being given, to completely abdicate that training side because it's yucky to them and then expect miracles is ridiculous. And they're getting, they're getting people hurt and they're getting people hurt on both sides of the equation. They're getting cops hurt and they're getting the citizenry hurt. And in both cases, you can lay that at the doorstep of the first people who are pointing fingers on Monday morning. And that's really who's the problem. I'm fortunate and blessed in the last two years, my agency, we had a, the leadership change. We had a, a pretty drastic leadership change and immediately the training standards and the, the training methodology started to shift and it started to shift in a really good direction, but I see it not just in my agency, but in a lot of agencies implement the absolute best training ever. And there's still a logistical issue there that it takes a long time for those things to filter through Oh, and then you got to have the right people the for that. It, you yeah. know, to be a to be a solid firearms instructor, not not and you, you know, and I draw a big distinction between somebody who can read a PowerPoint and grade targets. That's not a firearms instructor. We have ranges full of those, or they've been to one state mandated firearms instructor school. 10 years ago and that's all they've done and since then they're grading targets and and uh you know and, and running a powerpoint those aren't instructors either and the problem is too is most of your serious firearms instructors are absolutely despised within their agencies and certainly nobody's listening to them they're, they're always that guy in the agency because it, it's so sort of stigmatized that the firearms guys are you know, if you're really into guns, there's something wrong with you <laughs> rather than, and you'll, you'll tend to find is those are the ones who are least involved in the horrific incidents. You know, when have you ever heard of the, the, the ones who are literally very solid training ones who are going to these high end classes and they're spending a fortune out of their own pocket. When are those ever the guys who are in the, or gals that are in the, uh, absolute horrific use of force events. They're not, they simply are not. They're not the ones who throw 42 misses downrange. That's not them. I mean, just kind of going off the firearm side. I mean, if we look at what has sparked so much of this, uh, dissension in the world with the whole thing in Minneapolis, you know, should be sitting in jail right now, the chief of police and the mayor of Minneapolis, because when you have police officers who are, who you geared their, their whole world around climate change, social justice, and transgender issues as far as what training in the police department and resources as opposed to the weird thing in police work of how do we manage somebody overdosing on drugs? How often do we face a in-custody person who is on a deep-dive overdose of narcotics? Well, that's sort of an everyday thing. And there's certain things with that that's changed over the years and they're not staying current. I, I guarantee you, you're not seeing your 
high-level BJJ practitioners, the the one who's rolling three days a week in a BJJ gym, you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you don't see those folks involved in the heavyweight overuse of force issues or lack of force or improper application. Same thing is the the, the firearms instru- uh, people you know, who are into the, the firearms training who are going to high-level, top-level instructor classes, and you're not seeing them in the bad shootings. Yet they're all ridiculed. I, I mean, literally, I was banned by my agency from further participating in Brazilian jiu-jitsu <laughs> when I was on the deep dive with that, that you can't do any kind of uh, stuff like that off duty. And we're not covering you if you're injured doing it. And I put in all the paperwork. I'm a use sports instructor. This is highly adaptable to what we're doing. It's a very good positive and was told, no, they're basically saying we'd rather you have a heart attack on duty than the chance that you twist an ankle or something training on your own dime, your own time. That's how much they consider your worth. And that's how they treat their officers. And you wonder how, why you have these problems in these agencies. And it's not all of them, but it's a sure a lot of them. Well, it's interesting you summed up because I have seen over the years, and it's only been maybe in the last five years, I spent a lot of time shooting competition, shooting PPC. And, and I'm not like tooting my own horn, but you know, I mean, I went NRA distinguished at 26 years old with a wheel gun, you know, and it was like, to me, it was a huge accomplishment. And then, you know, making the governor's 20 and all these things. And it was just, to me, it was almost like a matter of routine after a while. And then I would go and shoot a three gun match and I would get like lambasted. Well, we don't shoot like that. I'm like, who is we, who is, where's the magical Like I shoot like that. Mm -hmm. The guys I shoot these competitions against, I don't want to be on the other side of their gun. I'm glad they're pro two a guys and they're patriotic Americans. Cause I darn sure don't want to have to engage in some lethal game with them. At that point, mindset is about the only thing that's going to separate you and, and mindset and tactics. But, uh, the competency level was incredible. And I sought out a lot of competition instructors and a lot of, you know, some military based guys and trained with a ton of people. But in that era, when I first became a firearms instructor it was almost looked down on it was like well i don't know you know this that's not that's not the real and i used to hear that a lot that's not the real world that's not how we do things in the real world and my number one comeback for that was if if jerry mitchellick was on the other side of the barricade would you want him shooting at you no <laughs> if he was using yeah, cover would know, it be it, an issue it's it's sort of a balance you know the stupidest thing i tell people i ever did is i had access to both before I got hired at my agency and then when I was at my agency, I had access to two Governor 20 shooters that I never took advantage of because I didn't want to shoot PPC because I thought it was boring. So I was doing all the, you know, the, and at the time that was a lot of two and three gun stuff on the LE side. Yeah. And um, I ran a, a ton. I was addicted to shooting speed steel and all the fast games. And, you know, I, I kind of came up and a lot of people will always kind of tag me with a thing that like, you know, bulky's the anti-competition guy. I'm not, I am not even remotely. I think you, every day you go to the range, you should go so, with somebody so you can be competing. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found though, that I was for me personally, I was getting some very bad habits on the sport shooting side. It didn't mean I shot less. I just went to training that was more 
directed. So like I'd get off a graveyard and I'd go drive out to Scotty Reitz's place and spend a day training with Scotty rather than going to a match. Again, it didn't, it just changed what I was doing, not the amount I was shooting or that. But I I mean, I'm blessed for the time I did invest in the competitive shooting. And, you know, if you don't have access, you know, to Scott Reitz level people to go train with, well, you know, I tell people, I go, the best thing you can do by going to some of these matches is you get to shoot somebody else's problems and test your gear at minimum, particularly for the cops. You know, you show up at a match and wear your duty gear. You just show up in your duty gear and you know what, you're going to really get a better understanding of how that stuff works. And you might start changing how you're placing guns, holsters, magazine pouches, stuff like that, based on what you're figuring out. Yeah. You you know, you're probably not going to win anything and your ego is going to take a bruising because some, uh, 14 year old girl's going to shoot you under the table. You know, welcome. That's good. Um, that's, that's literally what, what led me into competition was, you know, when I, when I started promoting the ranks in the army, they issued me this Beretta M nine and I was always like a SIG two twenty six guy or a 1911 guy. Me, that, that was me. Yep. And, <laughs> and I said, I got to learn how to shoot this thing. So I went and bought one and started going to matches. And this dude named Ernest Langdon started showing up with his buddy, Dave Harrington. And I was like, that's not possible with this pistol. How do they do that? But over the years I learned, Oh yeah, you can do that with that. And that is people accuse me of being a Beretta nerd. And I'm like, well, no, it's just, I, that's what I had to do at the time. You know, what's funny is I always had to sort of have a Beretta around because my agency was always getting laterals coming in from, uh, LAPD or LA sheriffs who, or the military who all had Beretta experience. So a lot of them would use them as off duty guns. So I always kept a 92 around just kind of, so I'd stay familiar on it. I hated the 92. I was a SIG 226 guy. Uh, you know, or 220, but me, my, my cheater nine millimeter competition gun was a 226. And, you know, I just despise the 92 and I find myself today every, and I still don't like it. That's what's sort of funny is I, it still is like not my favorite, but every personal best I have ever shot minus uh fastest time to a single hit on a target, which was with a 19 with a Steve Morrison, 1911. I finally broke a half a second with one of those years ago. Um, but every other personal best, you know, Vickers 300, uh, hit super tests, uh, any of that stuff. Every one of those personal bests has been shot with a Langdon 92. And I'm like, this is what it gets when you get out there with a timer and a bullseye target, or some level of difficult stuff is your feelings don't matter. It doesn't matter if I don't feel that's the best gun for me, the numbers and the accuracy and how I run the gun speak for themselves, but you'll never find that out. If you're not out there with, if you're not out there with the evil stress timer and little, little hard to hit targets. It's kind of circle back. Even uh, a lot of what I do train in civilians is rooted in the marksmanship side, getting them to run a gun at speed with a measure of accuracy or, or starting to develop that, that path of how to run the gun accurately and not, not screw around about it. Kind of trim the fat away from some of the, uh, uh, some of the fundamentals that get lost in context. What do you think differentiates somebody that's a good shooter 
versus a good gunfighter? What are the kind of what are the uh, what are the markers there that you see? Now, granted, we can't we can't just automatically throw in. Well, they've been in about ten gunfights and they did all right. You know, I mean, there's got to be yeah. some type of measurement there or some type of marker there that we can we can look at and say these are some of the qualities that differentiate them. A lot of it is going to come down to application of skills in a fight and how good are they at doing that? So that comes down to not necessarily pure raw talent. That is the whole mix of mindset. So you can have tactical Timmy who's out there every weekend running their USBSA stuff and doing whatever. And they're, they're a phenomenal shooter, technical shooter. And we, we all know these people, you know, if you look at them funny, they go completely to crap. Basically they just melt down under pressure. Well, if if you're one of those, I don't care how good of a shooter you are. Um, it it ain't going to matter if you can't pull those skills because your brain's not right. And a lot of that for many people's exposure, you don't get to be a good street cop on day one. You know, you have to be immersed in disturbing levels of violence and stuff. And, you know, a lot of our world right now, and it's one of my, my, my beefs with like how we do field training officer programs, where now we're qualifying officers instead of teaching them. How many mistakes did you make as a rookie? Oh man, I can't count. We lived, luckily we lived through them. You know, luckily, and that that's all that learning. And, you know, I, I, I try to explain this to people and everybody gets mad at me and it'll be like, well, you know, you and your, your conversations about how triggers work and stuff. And I, you know, I can run this Glock with my, 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 my two and a half pound competition, whatever, you know, no take up uh, trigger and I'll be fine on the street. Cause I'm like, bro, it's going to be your first rodeo. You know, the most frightening thing you've ever done before this is your mom didn't leave the lights on for you when you came home late, you know, and, and now your, your first problem that isn't going to look like the local shooting match is going to pop up and, and you really think you're going to manage that thing textbook. I'm going to tell you what, but it's going to be a dice roll on whether you do well or not. I do this uh, program called uh, Training Habits of Highly Successful Gunfighters, and I have studied the historical greats, and I was blessed to be mentored by four guys who, between them, I think I, I got it figured out, have been about 34 gunfights. So I kind of looked at, well, what have these guys done in training, you know, to prepare for this? And across the board, one thing that stood out was they use very small targets on big targets. And I'm going to kind of circle back to this. I was exposed to this first where, now I had already been using small targets on big targets, but going to B8s, I will 100% credit Larry Vickers for getting me on the B8 program. Same here. Because, yeah, because there's nothing like Larry and his evil timer and a B8 target in which everything out of the 10 is a miss. That was old Larry. Everything out of the 10 was you were unloading the, the pistol and doing five solid dry presses, which might take you six or seven. 
before you're allowed to reload and start over. If you put anything out of the 10 on a timer, you know, it was horrible. Um, and you know, so I'll give them credit, but then, you know, my new little place in the tactical industry where I've assigned myself because I'm happy there is sort of being the historian. Now that I've entered my, my, you know, 30th year of doing this and I'm old and gray and broken and can't keep up with kids anymore is, you know, I found a picture from the 1920s, Colonel Askins training his border patrol guys. If you don't know who Colonel Askins is, you're wrong. Not only was Askins a high level competitive shooter, like the top of the food chain in his era, he was a psychopathic killer. That guy killed like the absolute plague and it didn't matter. It was criminals, Nazi snipers. You know, th- the guy was in, was basically mindset wired for killing fellow human beings, doing bad things. I'm looking at pictures of him training his border patrol guys and they've got silhouette targets with B8 stapled up against them. Hmm. Clue. You know, my mindset here's, yeah, here's the greatest gunfighter of his era using small targets on big targets. So this one I'm circling back to is acceptable target. We always hear this. Well, you shoot as fast as you can for the acceptable target. Well, what's an acceptable target in a three-gun match? That depends on which sanctioned body you go by. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because the first one (laughs) I showed up to was brutal. It was like this lollipop 600 meter target that was painted bright red. It was like, well, you got to put two in that. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, really? Any, 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 t- any, yeah, two anywhere. And then, you know, you get into some of the other matches and it's going to be, you know, alphas and Charlie's and Mike's and stuff. And, and, you know, everybody's kind of playing this game and then you go to the indoor, you know, the typical indoor shooting range with the gun store commandos. And it's like, I remember there was a thing and this keeps circling around again, you know, combat accuracy and spreading trauma, which basically means, you know, putting rounds anywhere on a person because you're spreading all that trauma around and really, you know, you don't ever want to stack two rounds on top of each other because that's just wasting trauma. You know, it's, it's stupid. Here's the reality of what, what I teach. You need to hit something the size of, an, of a small grapefruit or a big orange in the chest and something the size of a small grapefruit or a small orange in the head. That's your acceptable targets when you're shooting pistols at other human beings. The target in the chest, you can miss that orange, and at least the body will contain that round usually, if you can at least keep it in the body somewhere. But I'm going to tell you right now, you will be shooting again. The name of this game right now is getting it done as fast as humanly possible. Every time I get a uh, a trauma surgeon or a doc or whatever in one of my classes. And I'll ask them the same question. If you park a, a, a modern hollow point bullet through a human heart, can you fix that? And the answer every time is no. If in a gunfight you engage somebody and you park around into that aortic thing, can you fix that? And it's no, you know, in any level of reasonable time frame. you know, kind of, unless you do it to them in the operating room. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and sort of the same thing goes with the orange in the head. If you penetrate the skull and put around through the orange in the head, both of those are fight stopping things with pistols. So training anywhere outside of hitting those things is sort of training for failure. So that's one of the biggies is you've got to hold yourself to that standard. By the way, that just happens to be the exact same size as a black and a B8 repair center, which is why we use them. 
because it directly simulates what we're trying to hit. And you got to be able to hit it from, you know, 360 degrees anywhere, anytime. And, you know, if the hydraulic pump one in the body doesn't work, you're going to have to hit the switch in the head. When we start getting away from no cop left behind targets and we get away from sort of the target set up to shoot fast, you got to hold yourself to that standard of being able to at least do solid work on something the size of what we're really trying to hit in the field. And then we start running the clock on that, on how fast you can do it. But we get obsessed with that clock past the time of when we can stop, because that's what I call accept, uh, assessment speed. So we need to be shooting at a speed where we can hit that orange, but we have to do it in a time frame when we can assess every single shot and make a constitutional decision that it meets all the parameters for legal use of lethal force in the United States. That's every time you press the trigger. And we have to be shooting at a speed in which we can stop shooting when the brain sends a message, oh, we no longer have all those parameters we need for pressing this shot off and need to stop. I'm going to tell you right now that speed is not 0.15 splits. Mm -mm. It's not even 0.20. It's somewhere what we find is optimally somewhere if we're – we're playing the split number games. It's going to be somewhere in that 0.3 to 0.5 range. I kind of tell people if you can shoot really good, solid accuracy at 0.30 down to about 0.20, you don't need to do any more speed work for training to engage other human beings in lethal combat or in a lethal force situation. So anything past that 0.20, you're, 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 uh, you're, playing, you're, you're playing for a different game. If you can't shoot a .30, I mean, if you literally can't get down to that fast, you probably need to do some work on recoil control and some other things. So kind of the happy medium is somewhere being able to shoot right down, technically shoot down to reaction speed. And then the reality is in the field, where I find the best little happy place tends to be those .50 splits, where you're making all, all the good decision-making's getting done, you're putting shots where they need to be. It's not horrifically slow. It's not re- stupidly fast or irresponsibly fast. That seems to be, for me, for your typical police shooters, to be the happy place. Making complex shooting problem decisions and being able to lay down the accuracy you need to. That's where I'm at on that. So let's answer for everybody. How do you measure that point two zero to point five zero? How do you do that when you're training? So there's there's a lot of different ways to do it. And so one of the things that I learned very early on, and I simply stole it and I give credit for it, which was the LAPD SWAT qual. Then we do stuff where basically you're shooting a course of fire over and over that emphasizes that type of speed and that type of accuracy that gets you the subconscious. You're building a clock in your head. Then you start doing uh, little drills that start testing some of that stuff. So people have been on a range with me know that every time I give a command will not always be a shoot command. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're going to have to do other stuff like draw to a ready, issue verbal commands, draw to, to what we call contact ready, where you're covering some part of the 
body, whether it's somewhere from the toes to the top of the head. Otherwise, it might just be a draw to low ready. It might not be a draw at all, an issue in a verbal challenge. There's a lot of different stuff. So I start throwing complexity in there to add to the mix. Uh, the other easiest thing to do that um, Wayne and I are doing a lot of now is throw a bunch of non-shoot targets in front of your shoot targets. If you're not paying just lip service to the four basic safety rules, you shouldn't be putting muzzles on non-shoots. See, everybody likes to everybody likes to pay that one lip service until it's your wife, child, mom, whatever. Do you want some cop or civilian, uh, you know, citizen carry person to be running a muzzle over something you hold that dearly? Yeah. Is that acceptable? It's not. And, you know, it's always acceptable when you're the one doing it. It's not if it's getting done to you. Yeah. Yeah. Get getting back to, uh, how you, how you measure that. I was, uh, I was actually kind of being a, a, a wee bit sarcastic, uh, in that, uh, you need to get a timer that you need to get a timer yeah. and figure those things out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh no. The, the timer's the key to this. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the handheld stress thing, you know, the problem with the timers, this really, really terrible shooters don't often run timers. Um, I mean, most of us are to the point where we don't really, you know, if we're doing this all the time, we don't really need one. If that makes sense. We have most of our times and our paces set. Um, you know, I can, I can generally shoot a test and I don't really need the timer to know if it's under 10 seconds or not. Right. It's more, it, you know, I, I, I run it, but the reality is I don't really have to, um, cause I, I bump that thing right up to the, I try to take every bit of that 10 seconds. So I'm pretty aware of where that's at. That's funny. You know? That's funny. And, My best scores <laughs> fall at about eight and a half. And, and it's, right, it's so, that PPC clock of, okay, go 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 yeah, you know that yeah and yeah and mine tend to be right around that eight nine to nine three somewhere yeah. in there tends to be if i bump too hard on the 10 seconds those 971s i'm usually pushing those last shots because i didn't do something right it's, but you know if you're right on it, it anything in that kind of uh for a good shooter that right around eight and a half seconds seems to be the happy place of of getting good scores without pushing it too hard. The the crazy. And that's the whole idea of that. Yeah. You know, is to sort of set that pace in your head of what's a good pace I can shoot at assessment speed. And then, but if you're never running the timer, you don't really know. And then we have the other side of the equation where it's all about the timer. Mm-hmm. Where everything we do is based on, you know, it was funny. I, I did a, a drill when I had the, um, the ladies out, uh, Saturday and, you know, I start throwing some stuff out there and I go, you know, and a lot of it was no shoot stuff. I mean, or you couldn't shoot or you had a lot of decision-making to make before you, you had a lot of complex problems to yeah. solve before you got to pull, press a trigger. And, and, you know, all of a sudden I go, you know, when, when we'll do one of those drills where I'll give them something where it's a, um, for example, I'll give everybody a no-shoot command. It's a threat command that they have to verbally engage the target, but then I'll walk up to one shooter and said, no matter what I tell everybody else, I want you to start shooting. So I'm trying to I'm trying to trip off that sympathetic shooting response. Right. You know, and you got all this going on, and you know, nobody wants to sit there and go, the timer goes off, beep, 
and you draw to a hard ready and you issue a verbal command and nobody grabs that timer and runs over to their YouTube channel to go, look, YouTube, here's my, my timer. Here's my, I didn't shoot time. uh, Yeah. Nobody wants to do that. So everybody, you have this other segment of the shooting world that lives to go run to show their timer, a camera to their camera. And you know, Hey, you, you know, whatever makes you happy floats your boat. I'm glad you can do it. That's cool. And everything. Um, I, I tell people, I wish I had every round back. I spent when I, back when I cared, uh, when I was trying to get from those, you know, those one, six to those one, five splits, I wish I had all of that back and did something more productive with it. Um, you know, the reality for a broken old guy, I think I can shoot as fast as I need to at this point, or certainly as fast as I can assess. And anything more than that is, uh, I'm just honest about it. I, I'm, you're playing a technical shooting game. And there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, you're going to be hard pressed to sell me on that. That that's really, 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 really helping you on solving real world use of force problems. Yeah. And usually the people who are arguing the hardest with me that what they're doing is true, true training, and they they know the way tend to be the people who have never fired a shot in the United States and gotten to have the proctological exam that comes with that and they'll find out that time that that timer ain't that important in that interview when you're done yeah the one that they use an sl20 to scope you with yeah that one yep the the, uh and and oftentimes it's multiple people coming back again with the sl20 right (laughs) you know for for a second shot at the uh at what can we get you on and and, you know and and i worked for a place that was fabulous about how we handled officer involved shootings there's a lot of places that are terrible and you know that that becomes even worse it's a complex thing you sit there and go you know how how many federal depositions have you participated in because i'm gonna tell you right now those aren't fun and nobody cares about your youtube timer times that's uh, a fact they're gonna probably use your youtube timer (laughs) times against you that's one of the other great fortunes and blessings I've had in my life is my dad and my uncle, who I both interviewed on the podcast, both of them spent, uh, gosh, my dad about, uh, 18 years investigating officer involved shootings for the DA's office and then the department. And then my uncle doing this about nine years, uh, on the, the PD as a homicide investigator working officer involved after officer involved. And it's, it's, I feel kind of, uh, I don't know, sometimes like guilty because I have like two resources at my disposal via text or, or message or phone call or or dinner to go, Hey, let's break this down and talk about why these things happen. And, uh, so that's been a really, what's that? Oh, well, having your dad, having your dad who carried an, now he, he probably had an SL 35. Yeah, working for the DA's office, he had the big <laughs> flashlight for checking out what was going on, you know. He yeah. did that for about and, and, 11 you know, years, so, and yeah. it was every officer involved is, in the county. And all you need to do is run some of these internet theories by him and see what he has to say about how, how well that's going to work out, you know. I am not against, you know, so, you know, I had the ladies out this weekend, um, and, you know, I keep going back to it because it's fresh, and, I, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I've gotten sort of away from the whole tactical training world and the police world into what I call normal earth people world. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel they're getting some of the worst advice out there from people. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It, and, uh, 
So, you, you know, we ran a timer all weekend and, you know, everybody gets upset about the timer, you know, well, I got to do it in this timer. I got to do it. I, I tell them, I go, that timer's for you. The timer is simply for you. So I get a shooter who brand new to a new gun, new optic system, running a red dot for the first time. All that shoots a 29 second test. Now we don't really like, I mean, 29 second test is not good. Right. By right. our standard. Now, Maybe. it was it was a 99-20-second test or 29-second test. And, yeah, that's horrible. So then the next time, it's a 21.96-second test, also shooting 99 points. And then in class the other day, we just did a 13-point-something 98-test. So the wheels well, aren't falling off, even though there's, there's, there's all, great improvement. All it is is right. Is so instead of focusing on, oh my God, you can't do that in 10 seconds. I'm focusing on, okay. The first time you did it, you cleaned like 20% time. Now we cleaned another 40% off of the 20. I mean, now we're, all we're doing is mapping performance. So you get kind of a guide of that. You're going the right direction. But the big thing is, is the scores aren't falling off. How many Johnny normal, every average American shooter, you know, who talks a big game, but doesn't go to the range much. How many of those people can shoot a high nineties test ever with no time ever. (laughs) Yeah. With all the time in the world. So now you have somebody who's, you know, kind of burned out because they're like, oh my God, I was too slow. No, we're just using this timer to track your performance and set the timer is for goals. The timer is to set goals and standards and to kind of keep you honest. Other people live by the things and that's fine. That's their game. And other people refuse to use them because they don't want to hurt their, their ego. There's a time and a place for all of that. And I simply use it as a guide and a truth teller. It it, kind of just keeps you honest if you don't have somebody there with you keeping you honest. And back, uh, you know, back when I was in the heyday of shooting PPC and I I was in my 20s, so I knew everything, right? And uh, I had it all figured out, right? And then uh, I got into my 30s and started really pressing speed to accuracy instead of just speed or just accuracy and realized that I, I pretty much didn't know anything, so... But one of the things that PPC left me with was like that internal clock that I used to kind of look at that as a detriment. I was like, man, I feel like I'm just shooting at this pace and I cannot get out of it. But once I learned how to dial the throttle a little bit, it's funny. I went out in front of a class, shot a test as we were going over some different practices and and like performance measurement tools. I don't use them so much as drills as I do. Hey, let's not go to the indoor gun right. range and buy the big blue Smurf B twenty seven. Let's buy the B eight right. target and show you how to how to practice. A lot of civilians have never been told this is how you develop performance, you know. And and I shoot it and I look at the timer and my splits are all like point four seven, point four seven, point four. It's I'm looking at the everybody and they go, wow, that just sounded like it was in cadence or something, like you were marching just. And, and I, I used to look at that as a real detriment. And now the older I've gotten, I'm like, 
I'm shooting to the pace that I can see sights and assess the target, confirm everything before the round, before I let the round go. And then on the speed side, learning how to drive the gun and make it go off when I want it to go off, as opposed to with the PPC mentality of you're just letting the sights float and the shot's going to go when the trigger cycle's done. You're not trying to make it intentionally go at any particular time. You know, for all those years, I went, man, this is a bad thing. And now I look back and I go, no, that was actually a really good thing. I just never invested in it. You know, it just kind of happened. You know, I, guess. I was, I, w- I was really blessed. So back, you know, 24 years old, I'm out at LAPD D platoon and, you know, back then, I mean, I, I was the best shooter at my department. It's how I got that, you know, SWAT firearms guide job at 24, you know, right off of probation. I, I, I didn't really, wasn't really qualified for it other than I shot really good. Um, and I knew it. So when I went out there with those guys and I'll, but, you know, I'll never forget, I'm standing up on top of the catwalk on the shoot house with Larry Mudgett and the firearms cadre would go in and reset the shoot house. And, you know, so every room would have some shoots, non-shoots, little, little of everything, different force decisions, every single room. So a five or six man element would come up outside stack on the door, door comes open. They'd go into all the rooms and, and all you would hear in there is bam, 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 bam. Every target has a textbook failure drill in it. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was like watching ballet. And I realized when I'm standing up on the, the shoot house and I mentioned it, Larry, and I go, my God, they shoot in here the exact same pace they shoot the qual course at. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> you know, Fun, funny, funny how that works, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. No kidding. Dummy. So you, you're going from a static thing to application on cold hits. You know, the guys going in those, those, uh, on all those hits over and over again, they have no idea what they're getting inside. Every one of them is a cold surprise problem. But when, when it comes time to the lethal force decision gets made, they go into this autopilot mode of how to shoot it. And they know exactly what speed to shoot a perfect pair in the you know, perfect control pair in the body and a single failure to the head. And you sit there and go, Oh, okay. Now I get it. Because one of the things I found after being in a couple of shootings is uh, your clock doesn't work right when it's actually happening. <laughs> um, I tell people, I go, the best analogy I can use for somebody who hasn't been through that is if you're ever in a surprise car crash and you know, you didn't really think you could watch an airbag deploy in slow motion in front of you, <laughs> but that's what it looks like. Or, you know, the way the car's spinning around and you know it's like you're on some sort of weird uh, quaalude induced operation of this car crash well that's what it looks like in a shooting so when your brain knows how fast to shoot at a subconscious level for the accuracy you need that's a really good thing and i then confirmed it back after getting my folks on that course for a while and i started seeing the results in the field they shot in the field exactly the same way they were shooting their quals, but the qual has to be right. You can't just pull a qual course out of your you know uh, bag and go, okay, here it is. It has to be a very good realistic appraisal. The problem is, is a lot of people are afraid to use those hard realistic appraisals. You know why? Because they're hard. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Yeah. so they're hard. (laughs) So let's see, man, we've run the gamut in the last, uh, the last over an hour now. It and we kind of anytime you get me on a podcast. Well, we kind of bounced all over the place, and uh, I I try to keep these down to about an hour. So, if you had a final thought, if you were, uh, let's say you're a proficient shooter, and you want to increase your odds if you were involved in a gunfight, you're you're a proficient on the marksmanship side. Mindset's pretty good. My, yeah. uh, your mindset's there. You what would be the one the one nugget? you would give to anybody that didn't have the ability to pressure test themselves in a real gunfight, but had the ability to train for the worst. What would be that one nugget you'd give them? Find a good training partner that you can go to a range with and set difficult problems up for each other, whether that's putting a bunch of no shoots in front of targets, no shoot behind targets, targets with some decision-making targets where you got to move where you're applying the shooting behind the thinking. And that's the hardest thing is getting the thinking part and the shooting part mixed together. And the more you do that, the better prepared I think you are for if you ever have to use the shooting part that your thinking game is dialed in at working with it as opposed to panicking it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, DB, thanks for your time, brother. I appreciate it. Um, we'll be seeing you in March. So uh, are you and, uh, you and Wayne running any classes we can pitch here really? We're working on trying to put a schedule together like COVID canceled everything yep. we did last year except for the revolver class. So we're kind of still playing that game because the facility we use gets heavily restricted by that because we're using a police facility. So. Gotcha. But uh, I think I'll be doing the primary and secondary conference again this year. Uh, we're hosting TACCON this year. Uh, we will definitely do the revolver roundup somewhere this year. We're hoping to blow that up into a much larger event, you know, 15 shooters to 60 plus. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But it's uh, right now we're playing the same silly game as everybody else. Cool. Well, if you want to hang out for just a minute, I'm going to roll us out here. All right, the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast, episode number 18 with DB, Daryl Bulky. A reminder, this episode was brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Check it out in the show notes, mountainmanmedical.com. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.